It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Compared to most professional football players, 25-year-old Reggie Bush was a Boy Scout in 2010. He wasn't much of a partier, and aside from his relationship with up-and-coming reality star Kim Kardashian, he wasn't flashy. But off the field, Reggie Bush did have one vice. Cars. And with his eye-popping salary and lucrative endorsement deals, he could easily afford an entire garage of luxury vehicles. But unlike most athletes, Reggie didn't buy the most expensive and ostentatious cars he could find. He had exceptionally good taste and considered his cars an investment. That's why he only bought cars that would appreciate in value and spent a lot of time and money fixing them up, or at least paying other people to do it. Reggie drove everything from classic American muscle cars to luxurious Italian supercars. He owned a meticulously restored 1967 Ford Mustang Shelby GT500, a 1970 Plymouth Barracuda, and a 1971 Chevelle SS. And while it's hard to put an exact value on cars like these, it's safe to say their combined values add up to hundreds of thousands of dollars but it was a plain old vanilla Chevy Impala given to Reggie while he was playing at USC that cost him far and away the most, his entire college career. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This is our second episode on Reggie Bush and USC's vacated wins. Last week, we traced Bush's rise from football prodigy to the Heisman-recognized best college player in the country. We also saw how head coach Pete Carroll's questionable recruiting methods drew increased scrutiny to an already polarizing program. This week, we're exploring how the USC Trojans' BCS National Championship game against Texas was a harbinger for the downfall of the entire football program. We'll also uncover how the sanctions levied against USC and Reggie Bush might reflect larger corruption and hypocrisy within the NCAA itself.
The 2005-2006 BCS National Championship game between the USC Trojans and Texas Longhorns was scheduled for January 4, 2006 at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California, right in the Trojans' backyard. As soon as the matchup was announced, it was already dubbed the Game of the Century. Every championship game needs a storyline, and the narrative for this one didn't take much imagination. It was Heisman winner Reggie Bush against runner-up Vince Young. Bush was the best player in college football because he worked harder than anyone else. Not to mention he could catch passes, return kicks, and still be the best running back in the game. In 2005, he led the nation with an average of 222.3 all-purpose yards per game. But Vince Young had his own unique gifts. At 6'5 and 233 pounds, he was absolutely massive for a quarterback. Yet he possessed the speed and agility of a player half his size. He could outrun defenses and create plays out of nothing, while his strength and stature made him almost impossible to tackle. Not only were these two playing for a championship, the winner would show everyone who really deserved to be called the greatest player in college football. The game also generated several exciting subplots. The Longhorns and their fans wanted to prove that the Trojans were just Hollywood hype. Football was a way of life in Texas, and they intended to show that Heisman or not, they still did it better than anybody else, let alone a bunch of pretty boys from LA. Texas entered the game as the underdog, USC the villain. And no matter how you felt about Texas, USC, or college football in general, everyone wanted to witness the most historic feat ever accomplished in college football. The BCS National Championship game is basically the Super Bowl of college football. And like the NFL, the NCAA rewards the qualifying teams with a financial bonus. But since college players aren't allowed to receive the money, it's divided and distributed throughout that team's conference. Most importantly, Playing in the BCS game is the best publicity a football program can receive and the ultimate recruiting tool, since every prospect wants to play for the best team on the biggest stage. The anticipation preceding the game was almost unbearable. The atmosphere that afternoon felt more like a heavyweight title fight than a college football game. In one corner, Reggie Bush. In the other, Vince Young. All 94,000 fans in attendance and the 35.5 million watching on TV knew they'd be treated to something historic, and their nervous anticipation seemed to permeate from the stands and the TV cameras onto the field. On the USC sideline, they did their best to ignore the nearly overwhelming energy. Head coach Pete Carroll and his Trojans vowed to play the same way they had all season. After all, they'd played in big games before. They were at the tail end of a 34-game win streak. But, as they'd soon discover, no game would be more intense, exciting, or difficult than this one. Waiting to receive the Texas kickoff, Reggie Bush wanted to put his stamp on the game right away. And as the ball sailed right into his hands, the hysterical crowd couldn't wait to see what he had up his sleeve. The noise was deafening, so loud that you wouldn't know Reggie Bush only picked up four or five yards on the return. This was the residual energy of a crowd that had worked itself into a frenzy awaiting the most highly publicized college football game ever. 
On their first possession, the Trojans looked nervous and jumpy, as if the excitement had disrupted their rhythm. And after a quick four and out, USC was forced to punt from their own one yard line, a dangerous scenario. But the Trojans weren't the only ones overtaken by nerves. On their first kickoff return, Texas fumbled the ball. And just like that, USC had another shot on offense. Reggie Bush picked up the initial Trojan first down on a bruising run, putting them at the Texas 30-yard line. Then Leinert threw an absolutely perfect 24-yard pass for a Trojan first and goal. On the next play, Leinert was flushed out of the pocket and forced to scamper out of bounds, but just before his foot crossed the plane, a Texas defender shoved him resulting in a penalty and another first down for USC. Clearly, the pressure had gotten to Texas. These were silly mental mistakes in a situation where the margin for error was zero. As the second quarter began, the Trojans led seven to nothing. Moments later, Reggie Bush made a play that changed the entire momentum of the game. On a screen pass from Matt Leinart, Bush caught the ball at USC's 45-yard line. He made a quick move to his right past a Texas defender, then spun past two more. Charging downfield, he demonstrated the speed and agility that had won him the Heisman. Two defenders stood between him and the end zone. But if anyone could score in this situation, it was Reggie Bush. Then he tried something that absolutely no one expected. Perhaps thinking he had enough momentum to carry the defenders into the end zone, Bush ran straight at them. But seconds before making contact, he tried to toss the ball to teammate Brad Walker. Walker, who'd been running downfield alongside him, hadn't caught a ball all season, and he certainly wasn't prepared to catch this one. Walker reached weakly for the ball, but it bounced off his foot and rolled on the turf for a fumble. All that Walker and Bush could do was watch helplessly as it was recovered by the Longhorns. As Vince Young and the Longhorns' offense took the field, Bush retreated to the sidelines. As he paced up and down the Trojan sideline, Reggie Bush looked uncharacteristically shocked and embarrassed. He'd made the biggest mistake of his life in the biggest game of his life. There's no doubt it affected his confidence. It also gave Vince Young the opportunity to get back in the game. Now, with a chance to turn their luck around, Vince Young marshaled the Longhorns downfield. But inside the red zone, his running back fumbled a handoff. Although he recovered the ball, Texas could only muster a field goal, putting the score at 7-3. But on the next possession, Matt Leinert threw an interception, and Texas got the ball back on their own 20. This time, Vince Young wasn't going to settle for a field goal. He wasted no time driving his team downfield. And only a few plays later, they were at USC's 25. Young couldn't hand it off and risk a fumble. He was going to take it himself. He took a shotgun snap and ran it to his left, where two USC defenders appeared out of nowhere. But no one could scramble quite like Vince Young. Though he was the same size as the defenders, he easily maneuvered in the opposite direction, losing both of them and finding a lane toward the goal line. At the 10-yard line, he was finally brought down, but before his knee hit the turf, he somehow managed to lateral the ball to his left and into the arms of his teammate, who easily took it the last 10 yards for Texas's first touchdown. 
One offensive lateral in a game is exceedingly rare. Two in one quarter is unheard of. It's practically inconceivable that Vince Young designed the play or even did it on purpose. But maybe, just maybe, he was sending a message to Reggie Bush. A message that only grew louder as the game went on. By halftime, the Longhorns led the Trojans 16 to 10. Stunned silence hung in the USC locker room like a thick fog. The Trojans knew they couldn't impose their will on Texas like they'd done to their opponents all season. They'd have to find another way to win. With Reggie Bush playing timid and ineffective offense, Lendale White took the reins on offense. White's bruising, punishing runs resulted in several Trojan touchdowns, but each time they scored, Vince Young was able to answer. Meanwhile, Reggie Bush could only stand on the sidelines and watch. With USC leading 38 to 33, and just over two minutes remaining in the game, the Trojans faced fourth down at the Longhorns 44. They only needed a single yard. If they were successful, they'd pick up a first down and be able to run out the clock. USC had to go for it. Reggie Bush, watching from the sidelines, knew exactly what the Trojans were going to do. So did everyone else in the stadium, including the Longhorns' defense. Leinart handed the ball to Lendale White, who ran it straight up the middle, directly into a line of waiting Longhorns defenders. The refs brought out the change to measure for a first down, but it was a foregone conclusion. The ball was going back to Texas and Vince Young. Displaying his trademark confidence, Young ran and threw for two quick first downs. A minute later, the Longhorns had clawed their way to the USC nine-yard line. The clock read 26 seconds, and they needed five yards for a first down. No one knew just how famous this next play would become, but for those who saw it happen, it was absolutely unforgettable. As Vince Young stood in a shotgun formation, the stadium was so quiet you could hear a pin drop. Then the center snapped the ball and Young dropped back to pass. With no receivers open, he decided to do what he did best, run. He dipped to his right and looked out at the field before him. Somehow, magically, he'd split the USC defense. There wasn't a single Trojan between him and the end zone. So Young took off and ran the ball across the goal line. Then the Rose Bowl absolutely erupted. The minute the game clock ran out, everyone knew they had just witnessed the greatest college football game ever played. But for Reggie Bush, it was a massive disappointment. That night, the Trojans' win streak ended at 34. And most importantly, they would not become the first team to win three national championships in a row. It was a bittersweet ending for Leonard and Bush, Yet the two of them were headed for the next NFL draft, where they'd both undoubtedly go early, and for undoubtedly lucrative contracts. But the NCAA wasn't ready to let Reggie Bush out of its clutches just yet. Coming up, we'll explore the NCAA's investigation into Reggie Bush and his family. Now back to the story. After a heartbreaking loss to the Texas Longhorns in the 2005-2006 BCS National Championship game, 
21-year-old Reggie Bush committed to the NFL draft, effectively ending his Heisman-winning college career. Bush was expected to be a top three draft pick until, just a week before the draft, news broke that he'd potentially violated NCAA's code of conduct. Allegedly, a sports marketing agent had purchased a house for Bush's parents in an under-the-table agreement to sign the star running back as a client. NCAA launched an investigation. As we said in our last episode, almost every star collegiate athlete is approached with some kind of financial offer during his or her career. And if that athlete accepts money in any form, he or she ceases to be an amateur and is therefore unable to compete. As a star at USC in Los Angeles, coached by Pete Carroll, on a team with an open sideline policy, Reggie Bush was destined to be corrupted. Details about the supposed violations were slow to emerge, but as they leaked, they appeared to focus more on Reggie's mother and stepfather than on Reggie himself. Around October of 2004, two fledgling marketing agents named Lloyd Lake and Michael Michaels offered Bush's mother and stepfather a house if their son agreed to sign with their firm once he turned pro. The exact details of what transpired over the subsequent nine months are difficult to confirm because many of them are still sealed. But apparently Bush's parents did accept Lake and Michael's offer. But it's unclear whether Reggie Bush was aware of the arrangement. What we do know is that a short time later, a powerful agent named Mike Ornstein took interest in Bush and his family. Over the next year, Ornstein competed with Lake and Michaels for the prize of signing Bush as a client. And this competition involved cash and gifts for Bush and his parents, a violation of the NCAA's cardinal rule. Michaels purchased a modest faux Mediterranean tract house outside San Diego for the family. Like the Bushes themselves, it wasn't flashy or ostentatious, but apparently it wasn't enough. Just before the draft, Reggie Bush signed with Mike Ornstein instead of Lake and Michaels. Agents are typically entitled to between 10 and 20% of a client's gross endorsement income, so Ornstein stood to make a hefty commission from a star like Bush. Conversely, it meant that Lake and Michaels felt like they'd been robbed of a substantial payday. Though we don't know for certain, it was most likely Lake or Michaels who leaked the details of the San Diego house to Yahoo Sports, knowing it would result in an NCAA investigation and negative publicity for Bush right before the draft. Still, with Ornstein by his side, Bush was drafted second overall by the New Orleans Saints. Further proving his ability, Ornstein secured his client a six-year, $62 million contract, not to mention endorsement deals with Adidas, Subway, and General Motors for a combined total of over $5 million a year. But even though the investigation didn't hurt Bush's professional chances, he still couldn't shake other consequences. With Bush out of college play and on his way to the NFL, why did the NCAA even bother with its investigation? Even if they uncovered evidence of wrongdoing, it wouldn't affect his eligibility as an NCAA athlete. That had already gone out the window once he signed his contract with the Saints. The only thing they could do was sanction him and USC. So this made an investigation, what, a matter of principle? 
The irony of this wasn't lost on observers to the scandal, as the NCAA doesn't have much of a leg to stand on when it comes to fairness. It's technically a nonprofit organization, yet it generates billions of dollars in revenue off of college athletes. Athletes who aren't allowed to touch a cent of that money, even though they're putting in hours equivalent to professional athletes. It reeks of hypocrisy. Yet when it comes to enforcement, the NCAA is shockingly strict and extremely overzealous. Walter Byers, the first executive director of the NCAA and the man who built the organization into the juggernaut it is today, coined the term student-athlete, and he did so to avoid liability. In 1955, the NCAA was sued by the widow of Ray Dennison, a father of three who died after a head injury during a college football game. His wife was attempting to collect workers' compensation benefits, but buyers in the NCAA maintained that Dennison was a student and not an employee of his university, and therefore was not eligible for those benefits. The courts ultimately agreed as well, ruling that his school was not in the football business. This decision became the foundation of the NCAA's ideology and set every college athletic-related financial precedent that exists today. But by the time Byers retired in 1988, he was completely disillusioned with the system he'd helped create. In his memoir, he referred to the NCAA's ideology as a neo-plantation mentality, with coaches and schools serving as masters and their athletes as slaves. Football and basketball are far and away the most lucrative college sports, and it just so happens that the majority of these athletes are black. In fact, black students make up 56% of college basketball players, but less than 3% of undergraduates in the U.S., and most coaches, administrators, athletic directors, and deans, the ones who benefit financially from the system, are white. So they're the ones earning money from the labor of poor black student athletes. Luckily, Reggie Bush didn't experience a career-ending injury in college, but even as the biggest star in the country, his athletic scholarship didn't cover basic expenses, and he didn't have enough money to make ends meet which left him vulnerable to opportunistic agents and others. After signing a lucrative contract with the Saints, Reggie Bush was no longer a poor black college athlete, generating money for someone else's gain. Now he had autonomy and clout. Maybe that power shift intimidated the NCAA. Perhaps they felt that ignoring the rumors of Bush's rule-breaking threatened their status quo. After all, if everyone knew that Reggie Bush received money in college and the NCAA did nothing about it, they'd look like Reggie Bush had gotten the best of them. One of the most frustrating aspects of the investigation was not only how long it took, but how little information was made available to the public. Throughout what eventually became a five-year process, almost no one knew if Reggie Bush had actually done anything wrong. And after a while, most people simply forgot about it. The only public development in the saga came in 2007, when Lloyd Lake and Michael Michaels sued Bush and his family for nearly $300,000 in unpaid rent. And even that lawsuit dragged on for another three years. Well, finally, in 2010, five years after Bush left the Trojan family, 
The NCAA released its findings. In the course of their investigation, they discovered that Reggie Bush had indeed committed financial infractions, and he would be penalized. Then they handed down the harshest punishment ever levied against a college athlete in NCAA history. Coming up, we'll explore the fallout of the investigation of Reggie Bush. Now, back to the story. By 2010, 25-year-old Reggie Bush was an NFL star. He was also rich, famous, and dating reality superstar Kim Kardashian. He devoted his entire life to football, and now he was reaping the rewards. Soon, the NCAA would release the findings of a five-year investigation into Bush and the entire USC athletic program. Again, the only reason anyone knew about the San Diego house was because the agents who bribed Reggie Bush's parents leaked the details to the media. But rather than pursue the men who admitted to breaking the rules surrounding student-athletes, the NCAA investigated Bush. And they really took their sweet time doing it. Five years of it. Ironically, the investigator's salary was almost certainly paid by money generated from college athletics. But that's beside the point. At the end of the investigation, the NCAA proclaimed that Reggie Bush broke a cardinal rule and invalidated his amateur status while still playing for USC. They also implicated the Trojan football program, alleging that they not only knew about the bribe, but they enabled Bush's actions by ignoring it. After five years of buildup and the hush-hush nature of the investigation, Everyone expected to hear about a bombshell of lies and deception, millions of dollars changing hands under the table. But what they actually heard wasn't nearly as salacious. In fact, it didn't even seem serious. For starters, Lloyd Lake and Michael Michaels didn't outright purchase a house for Bush's mother and stepfather, as the initial report stated. They were allowed to live rent-free in a house for an indeterminate amount of time, this was the source of the unpaid rent lawsuit. Bush's stepfather received a suit and his mother a dress to wear for Reggie's Heisman ceremony. They also received limousine and plane rides valued around $1,000. Reggie himself received a Chevy Impala SS valued at $13,000 and brief hotel stays on two separate occasions. That was the extent of the NCAA's findings. Not millions of dollars, not Rolls Royces and Bentleys, not exactly a capital crime. But the NCAA punished him and USC severely nevertheless. USC was banned from playing in any bowl games for two years. This didn't just mean the BCS, but any postseason competition. While this might not seem significant, it hit USC in the pocketbook was a loss of revenue from ticket sales, broadcast rights, and branded merchandise. In addition to the bowl ban, USC was placed on four years probation and lost 30 football scholarships. That directly impacted their ability to recruit, as they couldn't offer potential players any money to come to USC. This meant that the current roster of players suffered. They were being punished for something they had no part in. But perhaps the most damaging of all, 
The NCAA ruled that any games that Bush participated in between 2004 and 2005 were now judged as forfeits. That meant the games they had won now counted as losses. And as such, the USC Trojans were no longer two-time national champions. They no longer held a 34-game win streak. Just like that, Reggie Bush's career and legacy were effectively scrubbed from the history books. Furthermore, USC would have to completely disassociate itself from Reggie Bush in perpetuity. If they had any contact with him, they could face further sanctions. Just when it seemed like the punishment couldn't get any more severe, the Heisman Committee got involved. As a matter of principle, they planned to review Reggie Bush's case to decide whether or not they should nullify his Heisman Trophy win. And while the talking heads on ESPN and a surprising number of sports writers attempted to cast the blame squarely on Reggie Bush, most people were simply bewildered by the revelations from the NCAA's report. This was why he was being punished? And this harshly? Why was Reggie Bush being singled out like this? Noticeably absent from any mention of punishment was USC's now former coach, Pete Carroll, who'd accepted a lucrative offer to coach the NFL's Seattle Seahawks. Instead, the NCAA chose to punish Todd McNair, USC's running back coach, who just so happened to be black. The NCAA concluded that McNair either knew or should have known that Bush and his parents had broken the NCAA's code of conduct. Why McNair should have known, but not Pete Carroll, remains a mystery to this day. At no point during this ordeal did Carroll come to Todd McNair or Reggie Bush's defense. During Reggie's USC career, Carroll had been his champion. But now he took no accountability for his star player's actions. The same star player who helped make Carroll a celebrity and secured his contract with the Seahawks. It's indisputable that Reggie Bush and his family violated the NCAA rules. But it's also important to consider what they didn't do. Reggie Bush and his parents didn't gamble, they didn't cheat, and Reggie Bush never used performance-enhancing drugs. Nothing he did affected his or his team's play or the outcome of games. Whether or not Bush's parents had a nicer roof over their head, or Reggie had a car to drive around the city of LA, had zero impact on USC's 34-game win streak. Many felt this reflected just how misguided the NCAA's reaction was. Maybe the Bushes should have known better, but that hasn't stopped the public's opinion that the NCAA's punishment clearly didn't fit the crime here. Also, the punishment extended well beyond Bush to players on the 2010 team who were barred from postseason play, even though they had no part in his actions whatsoever. They were stuck on a team with a dark cloud over its head that took years to shake off. In fact, between 2012 and 2014, the Trojans drafted fewer players than they had since their mediocre years. For Reggie Bush's part, he barely spoke about the situation. He settled Michael Michaels and Lloyd Lake's lawsuit out of court and decided not to wait for the Heisman Committee to determine a verdict on his status. Instead, he voluntarily returned his award, making him the only player in history to do so. Then he went back to his NFL career as running back for the New Orleans Saints. But the damage was done. 
Thanks to the lawsuit, the NCAA had come down extremely hard on USC's football program, and even harder on Reggie Bush. Even though many saw the punishment as unnecessarily harsh, from the moment it was handed down until the moment he retired, Reggie Bush's career was tainted by scandal. If anything positive resulted from this case, it's that it led the NCAA to partially reconsider its stance on paying student-athletes. In 2019, they decided to allow players to profit from their likenesses. Now they can collect royalties from video game companies and merchandise sales. While to some this is a significant step forward, to others it's really just a half measure. This might be because it doesn't address Walter Byers' proposed problem, the neo-plantation mentality. College sports is ultimately still an enterprise where rich white men profit from the free labor of predominantly poor black athletes. And the NCAA reveals its hypocrisy every time it punishes a so-called student athlete while refusing to regulate itself. We can't eliminate college sports. That would be just as controversial. Many believe the obvious answer is to allow college athletes to be compensated fairly for the amount of time, effort, and dedication they put into their sport. For example, if NCAA Division I basketball players earned the same proportion of revenues as the NBA pays its athletes, the average salary would be $1.4 million a year. This way, if an athlete doesn't go pro, he has enough saved up to go back to school or finance another kind of career. It gives them a chance at a future beyond their collegiate years. In addition, perhaps it's time to retire the term student-athlete and call them what they really are, semi-professionals. It's been almost 10 years since the NCAA announced its sanctions against Reggie Bush and USC. But because of a recently passed rule, any NCAA disassociation will become reduced to 10 years, meaning that in 2020, Reggie Bush can be welcomed back to USC. The real question is, should Reggie Bush welcome USC back? Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Sports Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Russell Nash with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Tony Goodman with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy. 